Hi friends, welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Dr. Candace Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the President Dean of Gammon Theological Seminary. She's an elder in the Florida Conference as well as a church planter, strategist, author, and leader in the UMC. Personally, she is my family's pastor and I'm grateful she was willing to join me on the podcast. In this episode, we talk about Dr. Lewis's story of becoming a United Methodist Christian and her journey in ministry and leadership. We reflect on some of the denomination's racial history and the ways that the UMC is still journeying towards being a just and inclusive church. This was an honest conversation, but also a hopeful one. Dr. Lewis knows how to articulate a vision for the future of the UMC. And I don't say this lightly, everyone who is invested in the next season of United Methodism should pay attention to what Dr. Lewis is doing at Gammon. So grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really great and hopeful interview with Dr. Candace Lewis. Reverend Dr. Candace Lewis, how are you doing today? I am well. Thank you for asking. Good to be here with you today, Derek. It is so, so good to have you on the podcast. So people need to know that this is uh, as much about Bar the Conference and the conversations that we have as it is a personal thing. Um, and so I want people to know that um, you have the beautiful title of being my family's pastor. Um, you have been there for my my family, particularly my mom, um, in some very critical moments over the last 20 plus years. Um, and I cannot wait to tell my mother that you'll never guess who I interviewed today. <laughs> and she's it's gonna, it's gonna be great. And I just, I'm just so grateful for you personally, but also just, um, I am just inspired by the journey that I've gotten to watch you live out in front of me um, as a leader in the UMC. And I'm real excited to get some of that story on, on this episode. Um, but I just, I do need you to know just how grateful I am for you, Dr. Lewis. I call you pastor because that's who you are for, for me and my family. I'm very grateful for you. And, and just thankful that you, you've brought so much to my life. So with that, um, I, you know, the first question I usually start out with is, um, how did you become a United Methodist Christian? How has God's provenient grace moved in your life to bring you to, to faith for sure, but also to the UMC? Thank you, Derek. Uh, first, let me start by saying I am grateful to be a part of this conversation today and it really has been my joy to watch you grow in faith. I, again, remember I met you as a student from Douglas Anderson High School. I think that was a high school yep. you were part of. And your yep. music teacher, Miss Kathy, was a part mm -hmm. of a new church start in Jacksonville with Pastor G. Mm -hmm. And you were on the praise and worship team. And when I tell you, it was such a joy to watch you worship. 
you worship with such sincerity and with such, I mean, sincerity is just the best word that I could describe. I mean, your heart was just so turned towards God. And then literally to watch you go from uh, being on that stage, singing in front of all of those people. And I know you came out of a, a different kind of historically black context, but then to be invited. And that, and that, and to me, that's so important in faith. It's just this invitation, right? Your, mm -hmm. your, your music teacher invites you to become a part of this new church start. And then 20 years later, here you are. And, <laughs> and just how, again, of course, you know your own journey, but it's just been a joy to watch you again from the stage. Uh, mm. I remember some of those first services when you were singing and leading worship. You were the only uh, person of color, only African-American male in that space, but you were still so very comfortable. And you mm. felt very much so a part of the family of God. And I feel like that's what you have been an example of what does it mean to be a part of the family of God. And then to see you go from there to campus ministry, they can edit out whatever they want from this, but I just want to say it, to see you go from there to campus ministry and then the leadership in the annual conference. Uh, and then now to see you as a conference lay leader today and then to see you, you know, leading the podcast to, you know, have, have, um, read your heartfelt, you know, kind of coming out story and mm. in some ways just kind of embracing your full identity. When I tell yeah. you it has just been a joy for me to watch. And honestly, I'm saying again, this is just off the record if it needs to be. But I remember texting your mom after mm -hmm. I read your letter just to check in with her, said, hey, how you doing? You know, how's it going? You know, yeah. you know, where where are you with this? And, mm -hmm. and you know, she just said, you know, I'm at peace. Yeah. In essence, is what she just said. I mean, peace. Yeah. I said, hey, I'm here if you want to talk, talk about it or talk it through or whatever. But, you know, this is just who Derek is. And, and I'm so proud of him for just choosing at this moment to really live his full truth and really embrace it fully. And, and just to, to test to see if you will still be loved. And I'm so glad that, you know, and you have experienced. I can just see it that you you were you were still loved and embraced and cared for and championed and supported, you know, and for those I'm sure mm -hmm. who you ended up having to separate from or who chose to separate from you, you know, it was it was their own choosing, right? And and mm -hmm. and that you know, that just that that's 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 life. Yeah. Uh but again it didn't stop you from still living your truth and and from leading well. And that that's just been such a joy for me to watch you really, really lead well, but to also have watched you grow as a leader. Literally, you were in high school, right? Mm -hmm. And so now you're in your 40s. Forties, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. sure. So that's like 20 years of leadership, but you literally have just progressed, 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 progressed. Um, and I am convinced from my own journey, it doesn't matter how you start, it matters how we finish, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm I'm 25 years in myself now. So I'm on my way to finishing well. That's my desire to really finish well. But I would just encourage that to any leader that's kind of in, in you know, midway point to some degree, you know, that mm -hmm. we, hey, let's stay faithful, you know, so we can finish well, like, even though our faith may, you know, change, evolve. There are going to be things that we deconstruct, things that we, you know, construct anew. As, and as all that happens, you know, just let's commit to, you know, staying on the faith journey, you know, to finish well. So anyway, that's that's kind of my high five. And, and again, this is yeah. this is you being my family's pastor. You just yeah, yeah, yeah. you just put it out there. So thank you. Um, so grateful. Mm -hmm. um, 
So your journey. <laughs> so my journey of faith. Right, right. Okay, thank you. So my journey really started because I always ask myself, how did I become a part of the United Methodist Church? So I grew up in Ocala, Florida, and my mom, you know, was a person of faith, but we weren't a part of a local church. So my mom, I just remember, you know, as a kid watching her read her little brown Bible, which sat on the side of her bed. And, you know, I didn't know what the Bible was. I didn't I didn't understand it fully, but it was it seemed to be an important book to my mom. Uh, because she read it nightly. And so I just thought like, wow, that's a cool that she reads this brown book nightly. And uh, my grandmother took us to church first. Uh, and I remember being able to, you know, to get new clothes to go to church. But then I had, later on I had to learn that there was such thing as church clothes versus play clothes. And so Oof, I had to take yeah. off church clothes mm -hmm. at the end of church services mm -hmm. and put on your play clothes. As soon uh, as you got home. As exactly, soon as you got exactly, home. exactly. But I, I remember as a kid, and I was probably, you know, eight to 10 at this time when my grandmother was taking me to church with her and she went to a Baptist church, um, that that this place called church was a place of of, of kind of joy and hope and expectancy, right? It was a small Baptist church. So they had an outside baptismal pool. The water was dirty, but you know, you still had to get baptized in that pool. Mm -hmm. Again, didn't know what any of that meant in that particular church. You know, we didn't have confirmation classes, but either way, I was just grateful for my grandmother exposing me to church and exposing me to faith. So then you fast forward. So my grandmother's church was in the country, right? So now I'm I'm in middle school and all my friends go to like the cool Baptist church in the city. <laughs> so I, my aunt started taking me to church then. So we went to our aunt's church, which was, you know, big Baptist church in the city. And then probably when I was 13 years old, my dad had a conversion experience. And uh, in my dad's conversion experience, he read the scripture where Paul said, you know, you and your whole household are going to be saved. And so he one day t told everybody that you're going to church today and you're going to get saved. And I was like, what? What does that even mean? And then he he, he um, took us to a, what I later learned to be a United Methodist Church in that community because I didn't know, you know, the difference in denominations. I just mm -hmm. knew. OK, we were leaving, you know, my aunt's Baptist church and going to this new church in the community. Uh, so there was some resistance in me, you know, just as a 13 year old at first. Right. What 13 year old isn't going to be rebellious. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did find the people at the United Methodist Church to be very warm and friendly and welcoming to me and my entire family. And so our family stayed there. Hmm. And uh, that church is Zion United Methodist Church in Ocala, Florida. And now yeah. some. 50 years later, my mom is still a part of that faith community. Wow. And my sister is a part of that faith community. And that faith community, that United Methodist faith community was very pivotal in my growth and formation, uh, really as, as, a, as, a, as a believer and now as a leader in the Methodist church. Now here's what's funny, right? So when I asked myself, well, how did I actually get involved? I was voluntold that I was gonna be involved for sure. So the pastor at the time, Reverend James Brown, called my dad and said, Our, we need some secretarial work done at the church. You know, uh, can any of your kids help us out? So it was, I have five siblings. So it was five of us. And so my dad voluntold Candace. Candace can be the church. Candace can do it. And I was like, wait, what? So on Saturday mornings, now I'm the church's secretary. So I start typing the church's bulletin on an old mimeograph machine with an old kind of typewriter. It was the craziest thing. And I made $30 a month and the church took out taxes. So I took home $27.99 a month as a 14-year-old doing the church's bulletin. And that was my first church job. And then I got exposed to the United Methodist Women when Miss Jenny Harris, uh, who was a missionary to China, 
and she called my mom and said, we need a secretary for the Methodist women. Can any of your children help us out? And my mom was like, Candace can do it. <laughs> so she volunteered me to be the United Methodist Women's Secretary. And from there, Miss Jenny Harris introduced me to mission studies and she took me on mission trips and I got a chance to see all levels of the United Methodist Women, right? So when I look back on my life and, and all of the places that the Methodist Church and and hearing that call and answering that call and in some ways just kind of saying yes, you know, yes to being the church secretary, yes to being the secretary of the Methodist Women, yes to being the administrative board secretary. So it was it was in this kind of earlier yeses that later on uh, after graduating from college, so I came to faith personally in college at the University of Florida, uh, and then uh, heard a call to ministry uh, after college and went to Gammon Theological Seminary. So it was just this these small yeses that seemed to be fruitful that I feel like paved the way for some of the bigger yeses that I've had to uh, come to in my now almost 20, almost 30 years in full-time ministry, almost 30 years, not quite 30 years, but almost 30 years of full-time ministry. Gosh, I was tracking with you every step of the way. Cause some of it's, you know, a lot of it was very familiar to me, obviously, and um, similar to my upbringing. I'm wondering, I mean, sometimes I remember hearing people say, you know, we always knew you were gonna, you know, be whoever I am. <laughs> you know, we always knew you were gonna be a minister. I always knew that you were gonna do, you know, a lot of stuff in church. Like, are there people in your, you know, along your journey that, sort of saw you and not just voluntold you, but literally saw who was inside of the young girl who was, you know, just doing the secretary work, not that that's a just, but she's, you know, taking notes, you know, who saw you in those early years? I, I think that's such a great question and that's a great way to frame it because I think even in the earlier kind of voluntold, I think there were still invitations Right. They were still an extended invitation that said, hey, come, come share your gifts, come learn and grow, come, you know, meet some new opportunities and some new challenges for sure. Working at mimeograph machine. Mm. But to answer, your, <laughs> to answer your specific question, there were several people I feel like that not only saw me, but saw my brothers and sisters. One in particular, uh, Reverend James Brown was the pastor right in the Methodist church. I didn't know that the pastors changed and our pastors changed almost mm -hmm. every two years. Mm -hmm. But we got this new pastor uh, named Reverend Golden Smith and his wife was Dr. Mary Alice Smith. And she was a professor at Bethune-Cookman University. And she literally saw us as as siblings. So at that time, uh, myself, my sister Courtney, my brother Cedric, we were all just young adults in the church. And Dr. Mary Alice Smith was a professor at Bethune-Cookman University, and she asked a question to my brother and my sister, why aren't you in college right now? And again, they just didn't have a path to get there. And literally within three weeks, my sister, she allowed, she helped my sister apply to college. She helped my sister get uh, financial assistance. She drove my sister to Bethune-Cookman, helped her get situated in housing. And my sister graduated in four years and currently is a 
first. She always wanted to be a teacher. She was working at a pre at, at a daycare center at the time, but didn't really see a way to college full time. Mm-hmm. But it was because Dr. Mary Alice Smith, she saw us. So she didn't just see me. She saw my whole family. And she also extended an invitation to my brother, Cedric, to also go to Bethune-Cookman. So he went the following semester. And I was already on path to go to the University of Florida. I mean, I just always wanted to be a Gator. But I just <laughs> love the fact that um, but her, she also saw my gifts as well. And she, her and her family just gave me invitations to do so many other things. But I just love the fact that when you ask that question, uh, did people see us? And I would say, absolutely, God allowed people to see our gifts and our strengths. And I believe it really was when I, when I talked to my mom later on, these were things that my mom prayed for, right? She never held her kids back. She always prayed that her kids would have opportunities that she didn't have, but she knew it was going to take people. So she, you know, she just made sure that we were, you know, you know, good kids. Uh, and, but, but, but very, very grateful to God that people saw us. And so Dr. Mary Alice Smith was one of those people that really saw us and extended great invitations to us. Um, other people that I would say saw my gifts, like I said, from Pastor Brown, Reverend Geraldine McClellan. I met her when I was in college at the University mm-hmm. of Florida, and she saw, you know, my giftedness, and she extended invitations to us as students to come to Mount Pleasant to, to you know, be a part to fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was definitely one of those people, and you know, then later on in my journey when I went to seminary in Atlanta, Georgia, Rodney T. Smothers, he's still, you know, one of the people I consider my pastor today. He saw, you know, my giftedness and. Uh, it was funny when I was graduating from seminary, he asked me what did I want as a graduation gift? Because I was a youth pastor at the church while I was in seminary, youth pastor and campus pastor. And I told him I wanted two things, a set of commentaries, and I wanted to go on a mission trip because uh, our campus or at ITC, we were going on a mission trip to uh, Zimbabwe and South Africa. So that was my first trip abroad mm. was based on that, you know, kind of invitation uh to for me to just kind of name what I wanted because I had been you know real faithful as a campus minister and the church just wanted to kind of be a blessing to me as I was really glad I was ready to answer the question and the church raised the money uh, to allow me to go on that mission trip and gave me a set of commentaries full set of uh, new interpreters bible commentaries that I still wow. use today yes. come on yeah <laughs> exciting. yeah exciting so anyway great question and again there are other certainly have been other significant people in my journey more uh, recently in the last, let's say 10 years, one Bishop, Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin in Jacksonville, Florida, again, mm-hmm. not United Methodist, but definitely somebody who saw me and, and opened up opened up doors for myself and for the church, New Life community in our community in Jacksonville. Bishop King Carter, mm-hmm. definitely somebody who saw my gifts, invited me to serve on his cabinet and, you know, continued to you know, stay connected with Bishop Carter. So anyway, I just think that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Oh my gosh. I mean, I know we could probably go all all day. (laughs) I actually want to turn it around too, because I think it might actually be helpful. Yeah, I think sometimes, um, particularly living inside of the church, um, there are people who are well-intentioned, but actually do some things that become barriers to entry. and again, I think often it's good, you know, it's well-intentioned. It's the way we've always done things or, um, but I'm curious if there's not necessarily name and names, but situations that actually were, were barriers and, 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 you know, things that may have kept you 
if you had let them kept you from really living into your call um, as you were coming through? Again, yes, yes, yes. And so, for example, my first district superintendent, uh, Barbara Riddle, uh, and this is a person who saw me well, uh, invited me to my first appointment, which was to start a new church. Never mm-hmm. started a we church go, before, never, never even thought about starting a church. And we're going to uh, talk about that a little bit. I, too, I, I know, I know, I know. And so the second person who saw me well, and um, who was my district superintendent, uh, Terry Hill, really, really saw mm-hmm. my saw me well, saw my gifts. Later superintendents that I had, again, without naming names, what I what I can see in hindsight was that it was probably a lot of projection happening so that that it could have been a barrier if I had allowed it to be. It was like this projection in some ways about what a pastor should look like. Right. Versus kind of allowing your gifts to make room for you, because when you when I did spiritual gift inventories, I always scored extremely high on the apostolic gift scale. I mean, I was just like off mm-hmm. the charts, apostolic, off the mm-hmm. charts innovative, off the charts, entrepreneurial. But at the time, the Methodist church really didn't have space for those gifts, right? And I never forget reading the ordination material in my uh, ordination process. And at that time we were ordained deacons first and then later ordained uh, elders. So in in my deacon ordination preparation, literally one of the statements was that uh, almost like because the Methodist church is, is very, it, it, it by design, and I think the idea was that the order of worship was going to be the same, such that a person would go to any Methodist church in any city and almost have a very similar experience. Now, again, I think that idea could have been actualized at a time when cities and contexts really sought to be very similar, mm-hmm. that never really considered the real contextuality or the complexity that really is any church in any context USA, right? So, and if you think about it, the United Methodist Church being predominantly white, but always having had black church, uh, the black United Methodist Church as a part of the Methodist Church. So as a black woman, I was never going to fit into that box. I, I just, I just wasn't that box person, right? Because that design, they were truly trying to train a white male with that was married with two kids and a dog to be their pastor. And so the process was designed for that. And I just didn't fit in that box. I didn't check that box. Mm-hmm. And so to answer your question, there were people that oftentimes tried to make me fit in that box. And, this, and the way this one particular incident played itself out, I was a pastor at the time, but just you know, my gifts were making room for me and I got invitations to preach and teach and go all these places. And my superintendent asked me about, you know, these invitations that I was receiving as if, and and, and actually the superintendent alluded, alluded to the fact and called me an opportunist as if I was seeking out these opportunities. And I said, listen, with all due respect, I get invited to come places. And in my head, I thought, I'm sorry, nobody would invite you to preach across the street. Right. Mm, mm. But for the fact that people are willing to pay me to fly across the country to share a message of hope and and liberation, I think it's okay for me to take advantage of that and still do a good job at my local church. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like had I listened to that particular superintendent, 
I would have missed out on how expansive my call really has been to serve not only my local context, but the greater denomination. And so that to me was an example. And and for whatever reason, I felt like that superintendent at the time was projecting their own insecurities, the fact that they never got invited to go anyplace. So they just couldn't conceptualize that happening organically. He thought it was something that I was manufacturing. Wow. And I, and I wasn't. And so I, but I had to decide what I was going to do with that uh, very abusive way that superintendent spoke to me on that particular day. So I'm very grateful I had a therapist at the time. And I think mm-hmm. every pastor should have a therapist or, yes, a yes. or somebody to kind of help you process it. And and so in processing it and counseling, uh, you know, the counselor was able to help me understand that it wasn't me. I didn't have to own, you know, his image of me. I I continued to have the opportunity to self-define yeah. and and self-actualize. And that's that's been the path that I've been on. But But to your point, there have been these kind of um, moments where you have to decide, you know, whose report are you going to believe? Or are you going to continue to believe in who you are, who God's called you to be? Or will you somehow begin to shrink or play mm-hmm. small to fit into somebody else's expectation of what you could or should be doing? But every day, but you have to choose. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's ours to choose. Yeah. yeah. Oh, preach pastor, man, that's so real. Um, yes. So talk to me about your call to ministry and when, when you begin to say yes to the specific call to be a clergy person in the UMC. Yeah. So, so that, that call has been, uh, progressive for sure. Uh, so I said yes to going to seminary first. And at the time when I said yes to go to seminary, I was really interested in going to law school. So at the time, you, you couldn't do a dual degree in, in a theology and law. So now you can today. But back at that time, back in uh, when I went to seminary back in uh, 1992, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> OK, now. OK, I was here. I was around. I was doing some stuff <laughs> <laughs> like in diapers. Right. <laughs> I was in middle school. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. All right. Anyway, so so I went to seminary in 92. And mm. um, so anyway, so I said yes to seminary first. I did not say yes to pastoral ministry because I thought I was going to be an attorney. And um, as I was finishing up seminary, I had this kind of impression from what I would call like, and it kind of like the kind of the the Holy Spirit just kind of impresses something upon your heart, right? I can't say I heard it audibly, but I just kind of got this impression uh, that helped me decide that I was okay with not pursuing law school. Uh, The impression was that, you know, Candace, if you accept your call as a pastor, you can every week defend the highest law of the land that has eternal consequences. So every time you prepare a sermon, you get to share good news that has eternal consequences and and you can help people really, you know, come into a new sense of liberation and freedom different and with lasting results than you ever could as an attorney. So why not use your gifts over here that can create more eternal consequences and eternal impact 
uh, as opposed to using them in a courtroom every day. Because my concern about that was in a courtroom every day, I didn't I was aware that my own persuasive gifts could help a guilty person go free. And over here in the church context, we're all guilty, right? If we follow that mm-hmm. kind of way of presenting the gospel, mm-hmm. um, not a grace filled way, but either way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you follow that kind of way of presenting the gospel, you know, it's an opportunity to invite everybody to a place of grace and freedom and liberty. So so that was my invitation. So, so to me, I felt like God consistently has given me invitations to continue to accept a new aspect of my call. So I didn't get like some expansive view of call when I was in seminary. I just got like the next thing that was in front of me to do. And so that was easier for me to say yes to. So I said yes to pastoral ministry once I kind of got that impression. And so I was a pastor for 12 years. And then from there, I began to get this this reality because again, I was a church planter and at the time I was a church planner, there was no training in church planting. So and I felt like yeah. the Lord took me in new life the long way, you know, but we learned a whole lot in that journey. And so when I got the invitation to work for the national denomination, Path One, in church planting, it just made sense. Right. Because it was going to be a way that the Lord was going to redeem the painful journey that I had. Mm-hmm. So if I could make anybody mm-hmm. else's journey journey shorter, easier as a coach and a consultant, I wanted to do that, right? And so every time I was able to help, especially uh, female planters, uh, especially African-American planters, all planters, but especially those two, because there were so few African-American planters at the time, and there were so few female planters back at the time when we got started. And so it was just a joy to be able to, you know, over the next then eight years in my role as Path One Executive Director uh, for five years of that eight years to be able to help church planters uh, be resourced in ways that I just didn't have those opportunities to be resourced. Wow. So again, very, very redemptive. So I, I'm, yes. I'm honored. I'm honored in the, in the appointments that I've had, I have been able to have very redemptive experiences. I really want to stay here. I'm going to, I'm going to move us along. <laughs> but I, okay. oh, this, I, it, it is my fault. I took us over here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to come back because, you know, again, p- part of the context of our, friendship, relationship, partnership, and ministry is that you were given this opportunity to plant a church in Jacksonville. Um, and my stepdad and his family began to attend this church plant, which then pulled my mother, who we have our own church history that started way before United Methodism. And and we actually came to United Methodism on our own journeys, on our own roads. Um, we did not we didn't come to United Methodism to be in the same church nor the same people, but gosh, there was something so significant about the church that you planted. Still today, the the people that um, that the the clergy who have come out of New Life Community United Methodist Church, um, the the people who can attest to the ways that God literally changed the trajectory of where their life and their family was going because of the ministry. And even the ways that when things have been hard and I've had this, you know, sort of balcony seat of watching some of those things because my mom is a part of the church. Um, And the ways that as a community, you all navigated, you led a group who learned how to navigate struggle together. And so 20 plus years later, 
the other still there's some of the folks who've been there since day one and then there's also these other people that are rolling in and participating and and finding their place and even my own niece coming to a deeper understanding of her faith in that space so i'm just curious like i don't know if every church planter gets to like especially when they step away from the church they plant gets to see the fruit of what they planted. But I guess I'm wondering like, what is, what's that like to like be able to look at the church you planted and to be able to see the goodness of God even now, years later, what, what's that like for you? You know, that, that's, so again, thank you for, for reflecting on that because it's not something that I, actively think about often. I think at the time we were just so, we and those kind of founding members and founding group, we were just so busy in some ways just kind of investing. And we really invested our lives in, I mean, that season, I mean, we invested our our life into planting that church. And so, but it is, it is, it is, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it, it literally is an embodiment of the scripture that says some plant and some water and God makes it grow. So neither is the one that plants anything, neither is the one that waters, but God who makes it grow. So I'm just, I am in awe of how God watered those seeds that we planted uh, and how God has made those seeds grow. So literally to see um, like eight full-time pastors come out of one church Right. Uh, five five elders, you know, in full connection now mm-hmm. come out of one church, you know, local pastors, people who are leading other denominations. But but like I said, I'm I'm just grateful to have been a part of people's journey. And yeah, and so so that that that's that that that's just my takeaway. But I, I don't I I really I get no credit. I'm just honored to have been a part of the planting season of the New Life Community Church. Uh to me, the vision was always bigger than anything that we could see. And I'm I'm grateful that I feel like we were faithful in that season. And, mm-hmm. and I believe the faithfulness is laid the groundwork for the fruitfulness that they're experiencing today. Wow. So but, it was, like I said, but it was just this, this amazing group of, of lay people, your mother included, yeah. that were just, I'm talking about faithful. Mm-hmm. And and faithful mm-hmm. in a way that that God just honors, so they could be fruitful later. Uh, but just the, the the level of faithfulness that was, I mean, and and the way we took people's lives very seriously, and it was, and and I think at, at the end of the day too, I didn't have language for it. But in looking back, you know, because life is lived looking forward, but understood looking back. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Reverend Renita Weems said that, and I agree with that. So when I look back. I think we really took stewardship seriously. This idea that nothing belongs to us, but everything has been entrusted to us, right? And so I think, in looking back, I'm grateful that we sought to be faithful stewards over people's lives, over people's children. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yes, yes, call, I know. <laughs> yeah, over people's people's call. I mean, I mean, literally, mm. a lot was entrusted to us, and of course, we made some mistakes for sure. We did. We were young, and we just didn't know any better, but. I just feel like as stewards, we were, I believe that God found us faithful. And I, I, I think that's that's the best thing I could say. I like, I'm honored to c- can look back and see that, you know, 27 years later, that church like literally is coming up on its 30th anniversary. 
Uh, and the current senior pastor, Pastor Lamont Hogan, who I absolutely love with all my heart. Same, <laughs> he our, same. He's our minister of music. And so that to see him lead the church so faithfully and him and his wife and his family. And because uh, he now has probably led as the really second. So I was the founding pastor. So he was like really that second kind of pillar pastor. Yeah. I think he's been there longer than I was the founding pastor, right? So the founding pastor, I was there for 12 years, but I think he's now, hopefully he's close to his like 13th, 14th, 15th year. So that way his imprint, so I was able to you know, create one imprint, but his imprint has just been the imprint that's carried them through these seasons. I mean, because he was willing to take the job as a bivocational pastor yeah. and that allowed the church to save money because that church was on the verge of closing, but his willingness to serve bivocationally allowed that church to breathe and regain its footing, regain its financial footing, and now it's 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 in a season of fruitfulness because of his faithfulness, right? And because in that first season, you know, myself and others, we sacrificed, and and so they got a chance to experience a season of fruitfulness. But that fruitfulness, ba based on his willingness to be bivocational, has just caused that church really the breathing room it needed to be able to to continue, which I'm excited about. Wow. Okay. I'm going to fast forward really quickly. For yeah, some, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just want to ask this and then we'll take a quick break. But okay. you, so you, 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 church planner, past one, um, D men gets in there, uh, in the middle there. Turned up uh, D man, wrote a book. Yeah. 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 Um, district superintendent, president of the School of the Prophets. Did you see it? Like, no, did you see it? no, no. I didn't see Beyond New Life. And I, I said to the Lord, and if this is all you want me to do, I will do this faithfully. Mm. I can just say I'm relieved that that wasn't all God wanted me to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I had, but in every job I have had to say, God, if this is all you want me to do, because I never served looking at looking for my next appointment. I always just serve fully wherever I was planted. Like, you know, yeah. that whole uh, bloom where you're planted. That's what Bishop Cornelius yeah. Henderson told me when he mm. uh, ordained me as an elder and came to visit the church that I planted, New Life. And this was before when we were still in the shopping center. He said, mm -hmm. bloom where you're planted. He said, he said, if you want your grass to grow, he said, water it, take care of it. It'll grow. So I never served in, a, in an appointment looking for my next appointment. Every job that I've gotten, every invitation I've gotten, it came to me. Right. Mm. So, I, but I, I don't say that as a principle, like telling people don't go looking at new opportunities. So I don't say that as a principle. I'm just saying that as an experience Yeah. that yeah. said, while I was serving at New Life, Path One came to me, but it came through a mentor and I was expressing a need that just says like, I think I'm maxed out here. And so mm -hmm. he sent this an application and said, hey, I think this is your next appointment. So when I was there for eight years, Bishop Carter said, hey, I want you to join my team. And while I was on Bishop Carter's team, then Gammon said, hey, we want to invite you to serve in this role. So I feel like I'm now full circle to get to help train leaders for the next era of yeah. church leadership. Yeah. And so honored to be able to now serve the school that I was a student at that trained me. So now I get to help train the future leaders for the Methodist Church, which I think is important. So I think that's a good point to take a break. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> All righty.
Dr. Lewis, uh, we, in this conversation that we're cultivating on bar of the conference, we um, zero in on a specific event in the United Methodist Church, because I do believe that that event um, has been uh, more than significant. I mean, I believe it, 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 is, it changed the season of our church um, in the moment that it happened and what happened afterwards. So special session of General Conference 2019, traditional plan passes. And I'm just curious, your personal response to the traditional plan passing. And I'm wondering if you could even reflect a little bit. So a little bit and all of that. So so in, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, but also in my experience. And so I have been attending general conferences since I think I was I went to 2004, 2008, or maybe I started 2000. So I, I think I went to 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016. That special session was held where? Uh, that was in St. Louis. For some reason, I, I don't think I was there. I think I was at 16. I don't think I attended. I do think I followed it on Twitter, but I am aware though that it was a continuation of the painful way I think the general conference of 2016 unfolded, right? I mean, it yeah, was just yeah. it that one I attended the um, the pain of of the pain that was in the room when um, the decisions, you know, were less inclusive than any of us thought that they were going to be you know I was so I've been on I've been on legislative committee that worked on inclusion um, legislation but I, I I think though what I became aware of during 2016 probably start, started seeing it in 2012 but didn't didn't trust what I was seeing mm -hmm. but I think by 2016 which I think um, precluded what happened in 2019, I saw this, what I would almost call co-opting of votes. Mm. Um, and again, I, I can't point to any particular person. You know, you just have your perception of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And I saw this kind of co-opting of ideas and perspectives. Uh, at that time, some of our central conference delegates had large voting blocks of votes. Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S., I felt like, was very open to becoming a more inclusive church 2016 and 2019. The fact that the traditional plan passed, uh, I I was aware that one could question how the plans were being communicated, and I'm not saying this to somehow, uh, you know say anything about any you know group of delegates that they were you know more informed less informed anything like that it, it was just um 
it was tough for me from 2016 into 2019 to see the background, I'd almost say propaganda that went into or that led up to to 2019. So I could say I, you know, I was saddened by the results, but I could see how we got there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, so, so, so to me, I, so that kind of helped me shift to kind of better understand the need to dismantle systemic issues uh, because I felt like it was, we, the results we got were just as much a part of, of not addressing uh, systemic problems and and allowing how how you could buy cell phones for people or almost like give people gifts and things like that. Like I just saw there was a need to, in some ways, to probably change policies so we could get fairer voting outcomes. But again, and I'm not saying that to somehow say that you know that people didn't vote their conscience and vote their own true opinions. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying it was just literally with your own eyes, you could just see what looked almost like corruption. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I respect that as, as an opinion coming from, from where you were sitting um, and recognizing there would be some folks listening that may disagree with that. But, you know, I have spoken to a few of our, uh, Central Conference delegates and friends who feel a similar way about what they experienced. Um, and a few episodes back, Dr. Mike Bowie was on, uh, the president of Strengthening the Black Church for the 21st Century. And he made this comparison, and I'm curious just how you might, how this might sit with you, um, that what happened at General Conference 2019 and sort of the impact of the traditional plan to him felt very similar to what happened to two Black Methodists at a prayer meeting several hundred years ago, um, being told, no, you you can't pray here in this sense that my takeaway from what Dr. Bowie was saying the sense that we're still telling people they can't sit here. We're still telling people or, and this is me taking Mike Bowie's thoughts a little further than he articulated, you can sit here as long as you fit in this mold. As long as you, and we'll even give you some perks if you sit in this mold. I mean, am I... Am I often in these thoughts? Like, no, not at all. I mean, it, it was legalized oppression then. I mean, and so, and it was, it's, it was, so the traditional plan basically legalized oppressing a group of people. Uh, the decisions of um, the decisions of the Methodist Church uh, again in twenty, I'm sorry, twenty in nineteen thirty nine legalized segregation of black people. It it it, it made it legal. It made it something that we we're going to agree to live out. And so that, so those actions legal. So the Methodist church has a history of legalizing oppression, period. It depends on what group's going to be oppressed, but right. the Methodist church has a, has a history of legalizing oppression of 
groups of people that are made in God's image and made in God's likeness. Yeah. So the resulting years from there, um, we've got the protocol that you know comes before us, um, and and then COVID really kind of changes the game for all of us, uh, in part just to stay alive, um, but also in the ways that we do ministry. Um, the GMC launched. And, and we're getting ready for General Conference 2024, which is less than a year away from when we've recorded this episode. And so I, I'm wondering if you might be able to speak a little bit to higher education and how all of these dynamics, I mean, there's ways that these dynamics affect local church and affect the institution, but there's an adjacent group there of college-aged young adults and postgraduate and other individuals, older individuals who are sensing a call to clergy orders, ordained and licensed ministry, and so need to get training in space. And those calls are still happening, even with all this chaos in the system. And so I'm curious of what you've seen that the impact of all of this chaos um, at Gammon and among seminary students and maybe, you know, the ways they're persevering, but even the ways that the work of, of, of higher education has been negatively impacted because we are in this strange season um, that we're in right now. Yeah, so um, several different ways I could come to that question or come to making comments about what you just stated. Thank you. I think you set it up very well. I would say, though, one of the things that came out of General Conference 2019 was paragraph 2553. And I think paragraph 2553, giving churches a way to gracefully exit the United Methodist Church if they no longer want it to be a part uh, was a good thing. And I think we'll look back on that. Now, it doesn't feel good right now, but I do mm-hmm. think that we'll look back on paragraph 2023 in this season of disaffiliation and be glad that it happened because there, it was unavoidable at this point, right? It just, it, there, was, there wasn't going to be a way for us to continue to live together without creating more harm mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. And, and, then, and, and then not creating scenarios where people felt that they were being harmed. And so paragraph 2553, I looked over it before the conversation, though, is actually very comprehensive mm-hmm. and it allows for graceful exits if you if you for, you know, for reason of conscience. Now, I do think people and churches and leaders are exiting or have taken that as a way to exit, you know, beyond a conscious around human sexuality. I think they had a, a stronger conscious around owning their own property. I think they have a larger conscious around having power. I think they have a larger conscious around not wanting to submit to the apportionment system and a lot of other things. But either way, I think like the scripture in Hebrews talks about a shaking that happens until that which remains is that which can't be shaken. Yeah. So I feel like I feel like this was just a shaking that was inevitable in the Methodist Church. Uh, God bless the global Methodist Church. I feel like and I was uh, writing this week in my uh, gammon, you know, newsletter to our audience that I visited seven annual conferences in a matter of 14 days. And when I tell you hope is abounding in this in this United Methodist Church, I mean, from 
I watch bishops cry over disaffiliations. I mean, weep, literally weep. I watch annual conferences write beautiful liturgy of separation, you know, saying, you know, it's been a long goodbye, right? I mean, it has been a very long goodbye, but I, I watched beautiful liturgies of separation that acknowledge the grief and acknowledge the pain, but also claim the hope that is ours. You know, I was in the Florida conference and watched Bishop Tom Berlin announce and invite us to sing you know, a blessing over the pastors that are disaffiliating. And when I tell that thing was so powerful, the Holy yeah. Spirit fell in that place. I mean, I was in mm. tears. I mean, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you, lift up God's countenance upon you and give you peace. But this is where we find ourselves, right? And so, but he said that with such honesty and conviction till then we got to the clergy session. And these are pastors who literally in their own voting of conscience, we did not get 75% votes needed to pass and the whole provisional class was not ordained a year before. And I mean, so to see those pastors stand up and say, we will abstain this Mm -hmm. year, Mm -hmm. we have great, I mean, when I tell you this, God has turned this thing around. And Mm -hmm. so to me, there was a hope that that is bubbling up in this united and these united these in our in in my statement i call these people these people call united methodist there is a new hope that is burgeoning up among us that we just have to let it just let it let it rise let it come let it emerge yeah it it it, it, it has a it has a life of its own and it takes in it it'll continue to take on a life of its own we can just be kind of just join in this hope you could but but you could choose not to join in the hope and you'll still feel pessimistic and very lost and and very confused and only seeing you know what we lost as opposed to seeing you know what's coming so anyway i say all that to say uh as i engage students it's been it's really interesting because the students aren't caught up in the chaos at all. Literally, I have students that are just watching it and they're like, hmm, I'll wait it out. Like, they, they, they I mean, literally this one student, he was like, I said, hey, are you going to end the ordination process this year? He said, mm, not this year because I don't have a clear path. Right. I'm queer. Uh, I'm gifted. I know I'm gifted. I love God. I'm going to just watch and see what happens. And this same young man is creating just amazing ministries adjacent to the Methodist church. It's, it really is quite fascinating to watch and see the the leaders that God is really calling and raising up for the future of the church. But they're waiting on the future of the church, but they will create church adjacent all day long mm. as opposed to. Uh, they won't cast their pearl before swine. And honey, they see they see a lot of this stuff going on right now as a bunch of swine. Yeah. Pig mess. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and they're mm-hmm. like they and they know they got pearls. I mean, yeah. they know that God has given them precious vision about mm. the future, precious, innovative, unique ways to 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 gather people and uh, of community. I mean, it's it's fascinating to see. And they're like, Mm-mm, I'll wait. And they are just they're waiting to see what happens, but they're not they're not waiting on ministry. They're just waiting to see what the institution is going to do. So one thing I have definitely learned is that God is bigger than this institution and God didn't. Christ didn't die to save our institution. So the parts of our institution that is crumbling right now, you just got to let it crumble. It wasn't going to last forever, even though it's even though it's it's all that many of us have known. Right. 200 Mm -hmm. years. 
it's all that we have known, but it wasn't going to last forever. So you have to be able to look at that's the beauty of being able to look at church history. Right. When you look when mm-hmm. you zoom out and see the last 400 years of the church, uh, Phyllis uh Tickle said that, you know, every 400 years is like a rummage sale. You know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. parts that don't work, that get sold off and the parts that are going to remain, they're going to continue. And so she's like, mm, we're in the midst of like, a, I mean, she's she's passed on. But her book, The Great Emergent, talks about just this rummage sale that happens every 400 years. And so she mm. said, you're in the midst of like a rummage sale. So just kind of let it go, the stuff that's going to go. Yeah. And hold on to what's going to be held on to. <laughs> So let me let me follow that thread a little bit because you know, Gammon does sit in this moment where the way we even think about religious higher education is having to change um, the, the 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 way that we fund it is is really having to go through a transition. What is your sense of? where higher education, particularly religious higher education, where it goes in the future as our world, not just the United Methodist Church and not just the religious world, but like all of our sectors are transitioning to a different world post COVID um, and post many things. So where where do you see higher education kind of going from here? That's a great question. Again, Gammon is in the midst of just kind of figuring that out. And so I, I don't have it figured out, but I certainly can see um, the future of higher education. So it so is 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 theological training still needed? Absolutely it is. And so I can tell you what I what what are some kind of pillars that I have kind of landed on. So so do we still need to train clergy for future leadership in the church and for the church? I would say yes, we do. We 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 need theologically trained leaders, just like you need medically trained doctors, right? Just like you need right, uh, right. professionally trained lawyers. And so, I feel like there's still a need for professional clergy. Uh, I think uh, training, but I do think the context of ministry continues to evolve, right? So, are we training pastors for a Sunday morning preaching? Probably not only that, right? So I think the the context of ministry is definitely changing, but I do think we still need trained clergy. And I think that higher education, as it continues to also become leaner, um, more uh, relevant to the digital age. So most higher education institutions were built for the industrial age. And so now we have to uh, create higher education for the digital age. And so, mm-hmm. so, 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 to me, it's as simple as that, but that's obviously a lot more complex. A whole conversation in and of itself, right? So, how do theological schools shift uh, and if even acknowledge having been created for one age and the age itself, the era? And you call it age or an era. The era is changing right in our midst, and so some schools can pivot quicker or easier than others. And so that's just kind of where we are. So higher education is definitely in the midst of this kind of um, pivot for the future. So it's still relevant. I think we just have to figure out, figure out almost like put it in a good container. So right, new wine is being poured out. We need mm-hmm. a wine skin that's going to hold this new wine. So the wine skins we built from, let's say, the 18, 
80s and 90s when many of the seminaries were started. Gammon's 140 years old, so it was started in 1883. So it's so it's 140 years old this year. So it's the container we built for it for those first 140 years served it well. The container we need from 2023 and beyond needs to look different. So we're 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 in who we're in higher ed right now trying to figure out the containers to hold the new wine that God's pouring out. And and a theological school is a container. That's yeah. the best way I can describe it. It's a container that trains leaders to serve a, a, a time. And so our containers were built and they lasted a good 200 years. Again, our school, our container lasted a good 140 years. Uh, some schools are much older than ours and some schools are younger than ours. And so I think some of the younger schools are able to pivot uh, probably a little faster than other schools, but other schools are all trying to find a way into the future. So I think all theological schools are trying to find a way into the future. We all are committed to training leaders for the future, though. So that that the commitment uh, is is the same. We're committed to training leaders for the future. There are still God is still calling leaders for the future. Again, leaders still need to be trained like doctors and lawyers need to be trained. I would not go to a church that didn't have a professionally trained leader, just like I don't go to an unlicensed doctor, nor do I go to an unlicensed dentist, nor do I go to an unlicensed professional in any arena. So I will not trust my uh, spiritual development to an unlicensed or untrained leader, but that's just me, right? (laughs) Uh, That's me too. So I'm, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. As I've said before, we're less than a year away from General Conference 2024. There's a lot that's going to be on the table, a lot that we're thinking about. Is there anything that you personally, as a member and pastor in the United Methodist Church, but also president of Gammon, um, and thinking about the future, thinking about these young adults who are ready to do something and is the church ready for them? Um, is there anything that you're paying attention to and anything that you think like this needs to be on the agenda for General Conference 2024? Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not shaping the agenda as much as I'm probably going to be one of those people that are going to cast vision for the future of the church. Right. So so I and I but I do know that there are people who have to hear vision and have to. Um, create you know, uh, formulate it within our current system so that it, the vision has an opportunity to become a reality, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so I think my feedback is more related to where I see the Methodist Church going and what I'd like to see the Methodist Church become. I'd like to see the Methodist Church become um, and prioritize the work of justice, inclusion, equity. I want to see us really become a post-colonial church. I want to see us embrace what it means to be a global church. I want to see us become a real innovative church and really enter into this next iteration of what discipleship making looks like. How do we go from membership to really creating communities of belonging where people really do belong? So, So I have more of the vision of the church. I do would love to partner with people who can create legislation to help this vision become reality. I don't write but I do have good friends, let's say like Alex Shanks, you know, mm-hmm. people like that who who do a great job writing legislation. So I'd love to partner with, you know, friend, they're friends of mine too, that can create legislation that could 
position, you know, real great vision for the church. Cause I feel like that's what the church needs is vision. And, and, you know, really, and it's my hope the general conference, especially on the other side of disaffiliation, it just ought to be a time of joy and celebration. Mm-hmm. I mean, whoever's on the conference planning team, I just hope they just create these like amazing worship experiences and celebrations. But to me, like, like we'll we'll have to resist the temptation to fall into what we've known general conference to be, but we but we but I I really do hope that the team planning teams can recognize like friends, the hard part is over, right? I mean the I mean you made it through the season of disaffiliation, you you've made it through that. The people who are here want to be here. Yeah. There are fewer yeah. people who are going to yeah. be there that don't want to be there. So since we're here and we want to be here, let's just celebrate the fact that we're here and let's really position ourselves to really be about the future of the church. So to me, if you know somebody on the general conference planning team, I just think general conference 2024 <laughs> ought to be a celebration like none other. And, and we just don't have any reason to fall back into that old way of being. I think it'll happen if nobody's, intentional about it but i do hope that the western north carolina who's hosting it will just really really be intentional and in making it the celebration that it should be mm-hmm. um i just think we because because in, in in i was just reading um earlier i think united methodist news service shared uh they were, uh, had this article about uh some of our central conference churches specifically on the continent of africa and i think I saw a quote from Bishop Mondi, and I'm not quoting him exactly, but they were just talking about how the Afri- there are many African bishops who are working to keep the African um, conferences together in the Methodist Church, and they have a vision now for 2063. So they are looking out over the next 40 years. And I can't, I want to read more, read up more on that. Because if you think about it, though, the central jurisdiction was, it was, it took 40 years, right? 40 years is a generation. Mm -hmm. So they're starting to articulate now a vision for 2063. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be, I'm, I'm 50, 60, I might be living 2060, 2063. God willing, creek don't rise. But I, but, but I want to be a part of helping to, to shape and advocate for their 2063 vision. And to me, that's, that's work we could be doing today. I had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Peter, forget his last name right now, who's the president of Africa University. And he just told these amazing stories about students who were coming from different you know countries on the continent and what it takes for them to get to the university and how they long to be a part of the university they just had their largest graduating class of over a thousand undergraduates i mean they have seven thousand students on their campus i mean and so when i tell you we we have so many amazing global partners that we could be partnering with right now uh that have an enormous number of students and right post post COVID now post quarantine, we have the opportunity to connect more digitally. And so, so theological education can become more global now. I mean, it's so, so so when I tell you the opportunities that we have headed into general conference 2024, you know, with the, again, everybody who's there really wants to be there and this and we shouldn't focus on like we shouldn't like this old friend said we should don't wreck your car swatting at a at a mosquito right so the mosquitoes yeah. that are going to be there like don't wreck the whole car 
we don't we just don't have to focus on that. The people who yeah. there want to be there, the Global Methodist Church, they would have started, launched. I mean, and they're 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 gonna be fine and we're gonna be fine and we're all gonna yeah. continue to do the work, you know, that God's called us to do. Uh, and that excites me. So that that's my hope for 2024, that it would just be a time of celebration, that it would be a time of great visioning for the future. Uh, and that, you know, we would just experience literally just a fresh wind of the spirit. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's me. Pastor Lewis, I um, <laughs> am just so grateful for you. I'm grateful for your journey um, and for your leadership, for your way of articulating the vision. I mean, I, I, I want to be a part of the church you just described. Mm -hmm. um, and I thank you for pulling me away from legislation to get there. Like, well, you, know, again, so you might be one of those legislative writers. I mean, and so if you're one of those people, I could name you as well. So if you're going to write legislation, write legislation about vision. Right. Legislation mm. is going to help us get right. Legislation is going to help us create the future church. Right. Because the people that are here now want to be here. So you don't have to create legislation to create guardrail guardrails as much. So don't focus on the guardrail legislation as much as focus on the vision legislation, because yeah. the guardrail legislation is just for the people we already have. Vision legislation is for the people that are going to come when they hear that God is really doing something fresh and new among the people called Methodists. And that's what that's who we are now. We're the people called Methodists. So so even if the institution of the Methodist church looks different now, God is doing something new among the people called Methodists. And so we need legislation writers to come together and really wrestle with what that looks like and and how do we legislate justice and equity mm. and inclusion mm. and liberation and a global church? How do we legislate a post-colonial church? These are the things that legislation teams need to be wrestling with right now, because again, the fight for uh, LBGTQI inclusion, I'm not saying it's over, but after we write the legislation that, that takes the 72 language out of the book of discipline, it's gone. Mm. Once it's gone, it's gonna be gone, friend. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, so what? What's what's life look like on the other side of it? We got to figure out how to include our brothers and sisters. We got to figure out how not to be afraid of whoever comes as your pastor. We got to figure out how to still be just and equitable to everybody. We got to figure out how to include people. We got to figure out how to belong. So, do not spend all your energy. Write that one piece of legislation. It's gonna get approved on the first ballot, and then what? Mm. Mm. And uh. then what? And then what? And, and 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 so so do we still have larger fights in society? Of course we do, but but we but can we begin to build uh, this equitable, inclusive, just feel, justice feel, you know, post-colonial church? We have to focus our energies there like I said, but write the, the legislation that removes the paragraphs that have harmed people for for years, for the last 50 years. Write them quick, get them done, send them out to us, let us approve it. <laughs> when mm -hmm. you get in that committee, it, mm -hmm. listen, wouldn't it be great for that legislation to be on the consent calendar? Yes. I don't hear nobody. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's on the consent yeah. calendar. Mm -hmm. so, so then what are we going to do the next, The next because we there for about two weeks, right? So what are we going to mm -hmm. do the next of the two weeks? We're going to have to have some work before us. And that work is vision. That work mm -hmm. is, is really 
figuring out how we're going to make disciples. What does that next season of discipleship is going to look like? How are we going to become leaner? Because we got fewer dollars now, right? You got fewer people contributing apportionments. How are we going to create agencies that are going to exist for 2023 and beyond? That's the work that's really before us. How do we become a lean church, leaner, more effective in leadership, uh, more nimble, uh, and that are gonna that's gonna be attractive to a whole new generation, two new generations of people. That's where we are, in my mm. humble opinion. Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Dr. Lewis, I've taken way too much of your time this evening. So I'm, I'm, I'm ah, so so much good. Thank you so much um, again for your leadership, for your vision for your courage. Um, thanks for being my family's pastor. Yeah. Um, we're in this together, friend, but let's always uh, celebrating with you on the floor. When that, when that legislation get that, that harmful paragraph gets removed from the book of discipline, I'm going to be mm -hmm. rejoicing. And then we're going to wake up the next day and be like, okay, now the work continues. And so we got to get ready for both of them. Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank awesome. you. And thank you for the podcast. Thank you for the great work that you're doing. Your voice is needed, your advocacy, your leadership. Uh, yeah, so we need you. And thank you for what you're doing. Well, love it. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.